um, audience, a larger audience, we had more than 110 registrations. So we still hope for more to come, but it's exclusive and fine. And it's really very, very big pleasure for me to welcome Sim Sigurd here with us, who just recently has published a book on the topic of our event today. And we thought it, it's such an insightful, great book, and we have to get him here with us. And it's wonderful that you accepted our invitation, that you're here with us. And I think it's the first international event on this yeah. book to talk about this book and the insights from this book. And it's really fantastic to have you here. But Sim Sikud, and I think that's what I want to emphasize, is not only writing about successful digital transformation leadership, but he himself is, I think, a wonderful case of a successful trans a digital transformation leader. Um, just look up, I mean, your CV is so impressive. For more than 10 years, Sim Sikud has led the digital government, digital policy area in Estonia, and we all know Estonia as the front runner, always at the top of all the rankings of digital government. He has been, um, for five years, till very recently, the so really at the center of the machinery of government driving digitalization. Um, he also was the chairman of the OECD working group of senior officials on digitalization. So also a very international approach you have. And um, he was recognized by a political as one of the 20 most influential uh, people in digital government worldwide. So you're really a showcase of, some, of an exciting career in this field. And in your new position as managing partner of digital nation, you're also it's now, um, you're also consulting now governments worldwide in Africa, in the Middle and Far, uh, Far East, also other continents, uh, helping them to digitalize um, their societies, but also government. So it's really fantastic that you are here with us. And it's not the first time that Sim is with us. I mean, I already had Sim as a guest lecturer eight years ago for a lecture. And the last event we had at the school, um, before the corona lockdown, and that was just three days before we had to close down everything, was also with Sim um, to talk with him about um, the next generation digital public services. Today we have a different topic, but it's really fantastic that you're back with us again. Um, to the topic of um, today's role of leaders in driving digital, in, in, um, digital transformation, if you read government reports, if you read literature, this is a key successful factor for successful for, yeah, is a key factor for successful digital transformation, um, both in government but in the and in the private sector. Nearly all reports, all research, somehow mentions the importance of digital leadership. But if you then look at these reports, what is in detail? We hardly have any research. We hardly have any detailed reports to learn how this really works, um, what kind of role digital leaders um, take up in digital transformation projects, how they initiate um, digital and how they drive digital transformation, what kind of um, quali qualifications, what kind of um, um, practices are successful in effective digital transformations. I think it's a, it's a black box of a topic. We know it's important, but we have very limited knowledge about the topic. And it's really fantastic that you have written a book on it, and we can discuss with you the insights from this book. The idea is um, to have a first presentation, 20, 25 minutes. So to really give a rough overview and key insights from the book, um, Sim will do that um, based on the typical thing. And then we have Luciana Cingolani joining us. Um, and you all know Luciana. She's our professor for public administration at the Hurti School, and also one of the yeah, the few professors we have here at the school with a very pronounced um, focus and expertise on government digitalization, but also broader digital um, governance, um, uh, dig um, state capacity. So it's really fantastic that you're here with us today. And 
Luciana has read the book already very much in detail, and she said it's a fantastic book. So, so the first um, lacmus test was already done by her, um, and we have hopefully really great discussions on that. So Luciana will then um, take over, moderate the discussion, a few questions maybe from your side, and then we of course want to open to a discussion questions from all of you. So it should be an interactive format. We also after to have some small drinks um, so we can continue informally. And the small marketing kind of statement. We also, I mean, Sim was so nice. I mean, he came by plane and took 45 books with him. And I had to carry them here. It's, it's awful, incredible how much, you, how much weight you had. And we could help him a little bit to buy some copy, but it's of course free. It's a special price, five euros less than if you buy it on, on Amazon. But, um, and you also can, of course, get a signature directly from him. And I also can promise we will buy some copies for the Herty Library, for, for our Center of Digital Governance Library, so that you, all of you who are interested in this book can gain some insights on that. And by that, I would now like to invite um, Sim. It's great that you're here with us, and a very warm welcome. Great that you're here with us. Thank you. Well, indeed, I, I can't say no. We've heard the calls, right? <laughs> but. Um, very glad to be back, and indeed, the last time I was here, you reminded very well, Gerhard, that uh, was the very last days before everything closed down, right? So uh, uh, when I had to think about travel for about a year or so, it meant that, yes, Berlin was the last place to be into. You know, let's see if we can go anywhere else after at all. Um, but things have changed back again. Look, um, lovely to see you all. Uh, thanks for the brave ones who made it. It's, I know it's a Friday evening, almost coming up. But I'll be happy to share a bit about, let's say, what the book is about and what I think the, sort of the leadership in this field is about. And then I'm very eager to exactly have a chat. So, uh, so do keep your questions for the, our small uh, uh, discussion phase. But look, so you were already given a very kind introduction in terms of, let's say, what is my background. But indeed, so I, I've had the very luck and privilege of being in the government of Estonia for a number of years and exactly last uh, serving as five years, the government CIO. So that really prompted a lot of the thinking that went behind why to do this sort of book, and I'll explain why. And exactly these days we uh, formed a consultancy called Digital Nations. So yes, we go around the world helping others do even better. But so from this, we see that the same sort of stories and, and need for insights keep repeating. So the need for insights, what I mean is that, so when I was a government CIO, whenever we met with other colleagues, digital leaders, and I mean, when I say digital leaders, I say people in charge of, let's say, whole of government change, whole of government digital efforts. We all each time picked each other's brains about, so how are you solving this? So how are you solving coordination? Or, you know, what do you do if ministries don't listen to you? Point being, there was hunger to learn from others' experience. But that always stayed within the circle of those people having a conversation. Like Erhard said, so little has been written about this sort of field in terms of how do you really make change happen at, and in this form and scale and direction. So my intent was to say that, hey, as I now see that others are sort of missing this around the world, why don't we bring this sort of insights to a bit of wider audience and really put them into book. But as opposed to doing, let's say, a monography or something, my thought was to rather say that, hey, let's make this book a bit different. Let's make this really a book of stories because I think the stories obviously always tell, you know, explain the best in terms of uh, the background, the context, but as well as the concrete lessons and, and tricks, if you wish. So the book is a collection of 20 stories 
of uh, experience of digital government leadership from what I consider to be, or whom I consider to be, 20 remarkable digital government leaders from around the world. Most are now, by now, former, so meaning they have left the government roles or moved on to next government roles. Um, but there was one criteria in terms of choosing those former peers, uh, was to say that they may not be from governments that are considered, let's say, universally to be the most digital of them all, but in their time in office, with their teams, they made a significant step change in the digitization and maturity of that government. So which means that, obviously, there's never no woman or man who does it all alone, but they've had some impact. So I was off to say, hey, so what have been their sort of lessons, uh, their insights, and as I said, tricks indeed, with hope that perhaps this collection of stories then also gives tricks for others to copy and paste from into, into their practice. Um, the 20 people in the book, I think, in that sense, I really feel that every story is, uh, you know, has merits and sort of value on their own, right? So if you have a chance to read them, then uh, basically feel free to go one by one or even take one by every day. But my point being, I also tried to obviously generalize some common themes that kept recurring. So if we look at those 20 people or the common practice around the world, what are some of the common elements that perhaps best generalize into what does it make, what does it take to lead a government to some sort of digital new level or digital excellence, like I say. And um, what I'm about to say, in some ways, perhaps sounds very familiar, because a lot of it is um, common management knowledge. A lot of it is common leadership knowledge, because in the end, and even, even if we talk about digital government leadership, we still talk about leadership, we still talk about government, we still talk about let's say, how to manage things. So, but it's worth reminding them because what we also see from digital government, I guess, results or experience around the world, these things are not applied thoroughly and consistently. The very first thing to generalize from is that, well, these jobs are a bit hard because um, as a leader in any organization, but also in digital government, whole of government as well, you have to wear many hats at the same time. It's not that you just basically can focus on one aspect of the job. Actually, what I'm about to say, all these are your different hats. For example, if you are a digital government leader, you are a chief strategic officer of sorts of a digital government field. You get to set the strategy, obviously with the teams and stakeholders, but ultimately everybody looks at you. Now, why this matters is that um, often it was interesting from these 20 cases and, and, and from my, my own experience as well, um, digital is not a politically sexy topic, as you might know. Political masters don't give you objectives to reach or KPIs to meet necessarily. They might have a very vague understanding. Do something digital. Make us more digital. What does that mean? So, but that's exactly where remarkable leaders come in and that's where they excel because they use this as an opportunity to, to, to drive the agenda and define the agenda. And so that's why they're truly exactly all the strategy setters. Strategies, yeah, it can be similar from country to country, it can be different from country to country, it doesn't matter, but fundamentally the role is about sort of taking the helm and defining a future path. Now, from this, um, obviously they didn't do it alone, and as we'll keep repeating this many times, again, common ABC of management, right? You're never alone, as a, you, you don't get anything done alone. But fundamentally, they have their ultimate responsibility saying, hey, a strategy will come out of this. Now, from this, another hat is in many ways, you have to be a political strategist. You can't, uh, even if you are, let's say in the Estonian case, as a government CIO, you're not a politician, you're not a politically appointed uh, civil servant, you're a full civil servant, you know, uh, like, like many others. 
you're not meant to be political, but you have to play politics. So there's a bit of let's say, political had to take on board. Why? Because we talk about here reforms, and I'm sure you know this anyway, we're changing how government works. At the very least, this requires political air cover, as they say. At the very least, it requires this political support behind. Because if you're changing how stuff works, somebody's going to object to that. It's human nature. It's, 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 it's the effect of changes that somebody's going to resist. How do you get past that? Yes, you can you know, co-create them, involve them, and so forth. But every now and then, you have to put a foot down. Now, and some people, that even in this book, go in with a strong political cover like that. Others have to work for this. And they take this actually as a challenge to say, hey, let's figure out how to really get this and build this cover on top of uh, from the prime minister, president, digital minister, whoever. So somehow political strategist or a political even sort of master is a, is, a, is a part of the role and playing the politics around you without going into politics yourself. Another job, it's a networking job. Why? Because again, it's uh, in the whole of government. Yes, you can do many things to build out new user experience, new solutions for, for the people yourself, but fundamentally you have to shift the whole government to another place in the strategy you set out. Even if you have the political backing, even in the most non-democratic places, that doesn't still do the trick. You still have to get others on board, other agencies, other ministries, other ministers, or your colleagues and peers, other CIOs on board. What does it take? Well, if you ask somebody from Portugal, it takes a lot of lunches. If you ask somebody from Mexico, it takes a lot of parties. <laughs> so whatever is the trick in Estonia, it takes a lot of saunas. Um, whatever is the method that gets you on the same board, but fundamentally investing conscious effort into building the links with your peers, uh, building the networks of trust and relationship and collaboration with them is a big part of it. I think this is underestimated oftentimes because fundamentally it doesn't come about yourself. We, as with all our relationships, we have to invest time into them ourselves into them, consciously. So that's another hat besides the strategy and everything we all got to do as if you want to be effective leaders. Another thing, um, besides networking and, and, and let's see, what are the ways to build political cover? A very good one, what I think all the 20 people, for example, in the book Master, they are excellent communicators. And even in that sense, for their organizations, for the governments, they're often like chief communication officers even. They run the communications in terms of highlighting what is the progress, what is the strategy, what is the value that digital is delivering for the people there. Uh, what is the progress that you know, they have made or the teams have made? Because what does that do? Well, first of all, it ensures that, yes, politicians stay behind you or come behind you if they see that some value is being generated. But at the same time, it also ensures uh, many other things. For example, we are all short of talent. We all need good people in our teams. How do you get that? You need to get the word around that it's cool to join you. You get stuff done if they join you. How do you get that word around communications? So another angle that you can't do without if you really want to have a large-scale impact. Communications effort has to be a conscious investment of time, money, yourself into that. Um, as you can already see, so many hats to choose, so many things to put into Tay. Um, quite often, as you will see uh, from the stories around the world, there's also challenges involved and sometimes you fail. What I th was some, perhaps the most surprising thing from even talking to the peers is that how much burnout there can be. Because these people, if they come here, 
and try to really take a government to the next level, knowing it's hard, they're conscious about this, but still it wears out you out unless you manage your, yourself for that, or unless you really come in with a focused mission saying, hey, we'll give you our, our best, our all in three years and then move on. But my point here is this, that unless you, you, you are ready for this, that the job is hard, the job of change is hard, then you will just basically already be out of breath at the first uh, milepost, right? So somehow bringing that perspective in and sort of being, you know, learning the tricks from others, how to keep yourself lasting in this game is, is more than useful. One thing, one very interesting tactic that some of the remarkable leaders choose if they have hardships and the, you know, the job is hard hits them really, is that what keeps them straight at the end of the day is remembering the mission, why they joined in the first place. Even if the strategy was not given by the politicians, but usually all of us in this field go in to make a change for the people. For the people in the country, in the city, in the region, uh, Bundesland, right? So that is why quite often you see when you go into digital agencies, you see really sort of the slogans around or your posters around saying, hey, you know, look at the user and you know, focus on the user stuff like that. It's to remind you that whatever hardship comes your way, ultimately, this is what keeps you sane and traveling in the right direction. If there's a choice between what projects to take, what brings more value to the user. So being truly user-centric, also in the mindset of a leader, is what in the end can have, mean so much more impact because that keeps the direction of travel right. And also, uh, funny enough, what we all tend to forget sometimes is that you know, we are users ourselves. So what we see some of the remarkable leaders doing is that they sort of, you know, turn themselves the other way around saying, hey, did I deliver myself value today as a citizen, right? Did, we, did, we, did our teams make my life better as well? We all use public services the same way, even if you're government CIO. So keeping this fresh in your mind helps you traveling the right way. Um, and perhaps another thing that was very, um, not let's say a, like a like aha effect or surprise to me, but I think very strongly comes out from the book is that um, the best of us in this digital change field start working with their last day in office in mind from day one. So from day one, you think about, hey, so I have a limited time in this, even if you have an unlimited term. <laughs> but fundamentally, how do I make stuff stay? How do I make the changes that we make remain in place even if I'm gone? It's especially prevalent, obviously, in the administrations, in, in the governance context, where your term is limited by, by fact. If you're tied to a presidency, and the presidency can have at most two terms, you have at most you know, eight to 12 years in office, right? And you be, can be voted at the first post anyways. So you have perhaps four years of run. And four years, you gotta then run. Um, so they start immediately thinking about, so what are the, what is the culture to build in my team? What is the team to build? What are the processes to build? The governance to build into my country? What is the um, legislation perhaps to bring in to make some of the sort of changes stick and the new practices stick? Uh, they start thinking about this from day one because that's a way, because lasting impact at the end is what we're after. And um, what's most interesting in this sense is that <coughs> if they focus on the user, um, that often brings the biggest reward in terms of making stuff last. Because if we have delivered value, a much better service in terms of getting welfare benefits, easier way of getting your bureaucracy done as a company, if we deliver this sort of value through our efforts to the people, 
to the users, end users on the street, then they will want this to stay. And that's the sort of biggest, sweetest spot perhaps to have because you know, then that ensures that stuff will last. Even if the next complete different political government comes in, they may not overhaul your program or your results because they don't want to go against something that's popular. They don't want to kill a popular uh, service. So delivering the value is the best way. Delivering value from day one and actual value for the people is the best way to make sure that the stuff will last. But there's many more things you can do, and if you focus on that, that's the best way to ensure this. And perhaps the biggest message of, of, of all, um, again, a bit of common management knowledge, but is that in the end of the day, ideas don't count. Nice plans and strategies don't count. If we deliver them, that counts. If we make them happen and implement them, that's what counts. And the most impactful digital leaders know this very well. They're fixated on delivery. They're relentless, I would even say, on delivery. Getting things done. Obviously, we're not without a plan, not running in every place just to get something done in the direction of the plan uh, or the strategy that they had a chance to set, but delivering. Some of them are even brought in with that reason. So they are brought in because you know they've been, governments have had plans for ages, but nothing has been gotten done. So they bring the step change and they focus on that, and they manage for delivery. They build the teams for that, the structure of them, the processes, the cultures, the, again, many things you can do as a, as a manager, as a leader for that. But what's been most interesting, they themselves manage, them, they manage themselves for delivery from the routines of how do they make the schedule of the day, right? Focusing on core priorities and, and really sort of, you know, keeping focused and staying true to the, uh, whatever the aims are that they try to deliver on. So following through and through that delivering is the, perhaps the most important trait that I think separates the people in the book or, or in our practice or anywhere. And the very final thing, um, this can sound an awful lot. <laughs> and I said, I mean, it's a hard job. It's a hard job. But fundamentally, the good thing is that, well, there's lots of practice, and not just these 20 people. There was you know, about the same number of folks left out uh, because of space in the book. Um, the good news is I th I'm, I'm hoping that this story shows it can be done. And what the other thing that this story shows is that it can be done for um, different backgrounds. So especially for those of you students here, right? So in the 20 people there, there's some lawyers, there's some uh, entrepreneurs who've gone to the government, there's some people who have been technologists, there's somebody uh, who's been a consultant, doesn't matter what is the background. What, but what has mattered is that they have all learned the different aspects of this role, perhaps sometimes even in office, right? An entrepreneur coming in, I mean, they acknowledge themselves that they've had to learn the inner, the, the inner workings of the government. How does the, how does the policy game really work out, for example. But they've been keen to learn and they've been able to learn this. So this is my point of saying that if you want to be effective as a digital government leader to make change in, in government uh, and make it more digital, it's possible and is it in your hands. So some things you can learn in school, especially like Hurley. <laughs> some things you can uh, learn in the jobs you do, but if you keep learning, it's doable. So. I will really end my opening sort of remarks here. That's like a teaser, like I said, it's like a generalizing teaser into uh, the many awesome stories here. Uh, a lot of my own practice reflects that, and we can talk about that angle as well, obviously, in the discussion phase, but 
thank you really f for listening for now. And as I said, looking forward to many questions in the next stage. And Luciana, the chat with you. Thank you. And um, I should just do one thing, perhaps. So uh, Gerhard had mentioned that some books will be in the library, but I'm leaving at least one book to the Hertie Library already. So I'm leaving it in your hands, Gerhard. Danke. With your signature. <laughs> Hi, everyone, and thank you, Sim, once again for coming to Berlin, for being physically here, <laughs> um, and for this opportunity to discuss a really interesting book. Um, I already mentioned to you that I, that I really like this book, um, and particularly that I really appreciate the effort behind this book. Um, and I speak as someone who has worked on the issue of capacity building in the public sector, uh, part of that also digital. And, and one challenge, one obstacle you constantly face is that, at least as an academic, uh, you can observe the outcomes of capacity, right? The outcomes of high and low capacity, but you can hardly access the processes, the, the intricacies of capacity building. Uh, I think this book could be called The Intricacies of Digital Capacity Building, and it would totally deliver on its promise, uh, although it would attract less people probably but um, but I really like it for for those reasons and here you give us a direct entrance to these processes it's it's a bit like you invite us to the kitchen of digital government and you do that in a remarkable way uh, uh, where um, uh, your the leaders that you interview just open up and they are very candid and they talk about success and all the great things they've done, but they also talk about vulnerabilities and weak spots and failures. And as you well know, we don't document those things so much. We don't learn from you know, the things that went wrong. We only read the case studies and the you know, best practices and so forth. So, uh, so there's great value to that. And on top of that, you have this comparative scope. Um, I don't think you meant to write a comparative book, but it's a book on comparative public administration, and we don't have many of those. So, uh, so also a reason uh, uh, to praise this, and it's from this variation that we learn, right? Not from the, you know, as I said, best practice. Sometimes you don't know what to do with that. But in these nuances, we can learn what's, what's closest to us, to our cases. And so I really uh, recommend this book uh, uh, for real to any student interested in digital government, interested in leadership, uh, in, uh, you know, uh, topics that relate to capacity building and so forth, particularly for people who maybe are very strong in the technical side but they're lagging behind on other things, as you said, on, the, on leadership, on management, on politics, on, on PR and persuasion and communication and so forth. So this is, uh, the bad news is, as you said, uh, it requires a lot you know, to be, uh, or it takes a lot to be a digital leader. Um, uh, but anyway. Or at least an effective one. Exactly, or at least a, an excellent one, as, as, as in the title here. Um, I'd like to get the, the conversation started and then we'll open up for, for more questions. Uh, one thing that comes across from the stories is that I think in, in most cases, some of these leaders take the narrative of a crusader. Some, somebody who arrives and who has a fuzzy mission. Um, and it's not that they're alone and you make that very clear. 
but the, the, the crusader part comes with all this convincing, as you said it also in the presentation. So it takes so much convincing constantly. And perhaps one, one question for you from your experience and from, from the interviews, uh, what is most critical to this convincing? Well, first of all, on the, I think you said the nicest possible review ever, so thank you. <laughs> but um, it's an interesting comparison. I think um, whether somebody thinks of themselves and sort of, you know, the team that they're as a sort of crusade effort, right? I think it obviously also goes down to the, yes, a bit of comparative public administration, like you say. That's one of the conditions and in a particular country. But secondly, it also comes down to what's the context that they go in and come in, right? Well, how bad has it been before? And I mean, some of them, and it also might obviously be like a personality trait, like they like a few fights. So there's also a few people like that. But my point being that, I mean, if it's been, if the issue is, all right. <laughs> Thank you. If the uh, issue is that uh, they've had to really make a, like a, like a very significant step, <laughs> it might be me. <laughs> Let's see. Um, if, if they really had to make like a noticeable step change, I can speak loud enough. Hello, hello. I think this one is more stable. Let's see. Let's see. All right. Then um, the more they actually adopt the crusade mindset themselves, right? Because I think that's also a way to mobilize themselves and, and mobilize the team and for the effort and stuff like that. Um, so what's the most convincing part? I think that is really the reason why the leaders start focusing on delivery from day one. Yes, there's a bit of focus that, hey, look, I mean, I want to get stuff done. We all go to have an impact. But secondly, it's also that the, the thing that convinces the most anyone is that when they see that you really, first of all, um, can do these things that you're talking about. So if it's one thing to say, hey, government, be more agile now, right? But if you are breathing it, living it, you show that it brings a different, a better result, that tells a much better story. That's the most convincing thing, right? <coughs> Secondly, um, they start focusing on delivery because, again, that's a way to get to others behind you. And I mean, Crusade was also like, you know, mass effort, not just a team somewhere running in, in the hills. Uh, you need the public behind you, you need the politicians, you need the rest of government ultimately behind you. And the third thing, why the focus on delivery for the convincing part is that, uh, that at the end of the day, they need to keep a belief of that in themselves as well, right? If you if play with the analogy of crusade, it's built on, a, on, on believing. And they have to convince themselves that we can actually make a state, uh, change, that our team can make a cha uh, change, the people who have joined the leader to make a change, that they see the visible results of that. So perhaps we go a bit sort of too philosophical, but my point being that exactly delivery is what makes the rest of it possible and gets the momentum going and then the rest becomes so much easier. And that is why these leaders are, are fixated on that from the beginning, getting stuff done. This reminds me of the point that success builds institutions instead of institutions building success. It's kind of a... Okay, I have more questions, but I think it's better if we open up first. Uh, let's see if somebody from the public would like to... Yes, please. Awesome. That that working? Yeah. Real. Um, um, I wanted to follow up on your point about background at the end. 
Um, I know in the UK government, the model is often you move good civil servants and civil service leaders from department to department, so from health to immigration to the economy, back to health, etc., almost sort of irrespective of what those departments are. So I was wondering, if you are having someone coming into digital leadership from, say, health or immigration or economics, what would you say to them that is specific about digital that they may not have encountered before, or what specific background could they bring that maybe means they're a better leader there than they would have been in health, immigration, the economy, somewhere else? Well, first of all, um, so my own focus very much, in, and those are the stories here, are about, let's say, how do you lead stuff on, a, on exactly like, like horizontally on the whole of government level, right? So in that sense, the people here perhaps are not that much moved between departments, but rather, let's say, sectors more widely and so forth. So that has changes even bigger. And this is my, the reason why starting the answer this way is to say that, I mean, there you learn the whole new context. But the core of change and the core of what does digital change mean or digital transformation mean is still the same. I think so if you take it to the departmental level, right, and so rotation happening like that, uh, if you look into any number of governments, my own included in the past, if you've gotten the exposure and experiences of the right tools and methods in one place, there's nothing stopping you replicating them in another, right? So from that point of view, health or education, sorry to say, yes, obviously, different service, but fundamentally the fact of how do you do change, the, the process of managing that is the same, pretty much. So, so my point being that I think in that sense, the, the rotation can be actually rather rewarding, right? And I think that is also the reason why, let's say in Estonian government at least, if you can offer that commentary, uh, we value a lot of rotation and flow back and forth between the sectors. For us, that's perhaps less from department to department, and more than saying, hey, you can come from private sector to become a government CIO, go back, whatever, like that. So, and that's for the same reasons, because you bring the practice of how to do stuff, even if the what you're doing is different. Hello. Uh, so my question is about in your experience working with uh, digital leaders across uh, the globe. Uh, so what's the factor or one level of urgency that a government sees in that they put in a lot of efforts into this digital efforts? Like uh, is it the younger generation booming up or is it like a, a bigger problem like in poverty, in immigration? What is that commonality factor that kind of voices in to the political uh, you know, will to move things more digital? Um, that's a really interesting question because uh, my own subjective view is that there is no one. It's so depending on the context now that makes them move. Um, if, you take, if I go to the context of this book even, that perhaps helps to just explain a sort of examples from here. Um, why did my predecessor, let's say, was recruited into the job in Estonia? Because we were feeling that we were getting stuck on innovation pace completely like positive problem to have in a way, right? But still, um, in another place, in uh, in Mexico, they went in because, you know, government had been so corrupt uh, perhaps before, right? And the issue was, let's say, trying to open it up more. So for them, like, you know, open government, everything became a strong theme because of that, for example. That was what set them to deliver. In another place, exactly, it can be poverty, like you say, and so forth. It so depends. I mean, uh, I don't have, you know, I can't claim to have empirical overview of the whole world like that, but it very much varies and depends. Estonia started, for example, for the reasons of efficiency and effectiveness. How do we basically pull off a chance of being a government, you know, being as small as we are, 1.3 million people. Um, in other place, it goes into just the issue that uh, perhaps they have people who are dissatisfied with the quality of the service, right? Which was basically 
perhaps a bit of issue in Britain at the time, right? So lots of reasons, and and I think one only stands out. Rather, the quant if if I now put your question to another context, rather the question is to say what sort of biggie you can use to piggyback on. <laughs> so if if it, it, that's the bit of the political wisdom also, let's say, if you're, like I said here, as a government chief information officer, you have to play a bit of political game, right? So, sensing the right biggie, the right sort of reason or raison d'etre, why to do digital, and playing for that and communicating for that, that can actually help to get the agenda going. But it will depend on what is your context. Okay, sorry. I heard Estonian before, did I? Yes, so I just want to say that on behalf of two Estonian students at Heriti, Suurata, and we're very happy to also meet you. And um, maybe continuing on the previous question, I'd like to ask, like, what were the main challenges you faced in your role working with the government digitalization, and, and how did you overcome them? Yeah, so my own story and the Estonian story is a bit so specific, so... Uh, we have been on the path of becoming digital or going deeper in the digital for the last 20 plus years, right? Lots has been achieved, yes, but also the question is that so not all the boats are at the same level, right? And secondly, there's been a lot of discussion that say, are we innovating you know, enough? And there's a lot of desire to basically be always the, the front of the pack in, in all of it. So a lot of my sort of um, you know, challenge and, and sort of motivation was about saying, hey, so how do we take ours to the next level? Not how do we start going digital or how do we make a government digital in the first place? No, how do we take it to the next level of sorts? And in this, the biggest challenge, I mean, it basically comes down to one, one biggest thing, is that um, we are as small as we are. Uh, again, 1.3 million people. So if you want to lift all the boats, because if people have an excellent service in one area, taxes, right, in Estonian classic case, they expect the whole of government to be like that. Or they expect the whole of government to be as smooth as Amazon or whatever, right? So... To do that, you have a massive capability challenge, right? Because you know people, uh, officials are not trained for that, even if you try to upgrade them. And if you have a small people pool, you also can't sort of rotate them out enough. So basically, how do you lift the boats? How do you make the existing civil service really up their game and become more digitally minded, even in, in the context of Estonia? That was the number one thing. That's the number one thing in any government, actually. So Estonia is no special for that. Even if our mission is not about starting, but taking it to next level. And we try many things, like I said, saunas and stuff, but uh, there's always more to be done on that front. It, it never ends. Work? Does it work? Yeah. Okay, perfect. Um, yeah, thanks for the fascinating presentation. Um, my question is actually, I would say, quite concrete. I'm not sure with how familiar you are with the German context. But um, yeah, obviously there, is a, there has been a new action plan released um, and I think most experts agree that it's quite underwhelming. Um, and there was a big discussion um, yeah, when the new government formed whether there should be a own ministry, uh, yeah, digital ministry, um, and they decided against it and it's now with, um, yeah, with traffic and um, mobility. And um, I was wondering whether is there like a certain institutional setup that that you would recommend after or that you maybe lobby for as a consultant um, and whether it makes sense to have an individual ministry dedicated to, to that task? So, I know a bit about German context, especially through the years, uh, but uh, 
institutions don't just come in the form of organizational structures or agencies or ministries, right? Institutions are also processes, laws, mandates, whatever, right? And this is my point of, in a complicated way of saying, um, and also in my consultant work now, it doesn't matter, I mean, Deng Xiaoping, some of you know, right? Chinese uh, sort of, you know, head of state, at some point famously said, doesn't matter if the cat is white or black as long as it catches mice. It's a bit of the same. Doesn't matter if it's one ministry or another, under prime minister, president, different line ministries, matters what's their mandate? What is the toolbox, what is the power, what is the sort of, you know, uh, playground that they have to really steer the game? and sometimes also force upon you know, a bit of change on others as well, right? So that's the toolbox, that's the institutional setting that needs to be in place, the mandate, the sort of resources, the pool for that. You can place it in different places. In Estonia, it's part of Ministry of Economic Affairs. One line ministry among many. We don't have a special digital ministry. You know, some people argue we should, but fundamentally, that, but that's, a, that's an outfit that has at least a big portion of that mandate that needs to be there, right? Um, in other countries, if you need to kickstart things from scratch, yes, you might need to carve out a special team with that mandate. So that, again, the context will determine. But fundamentally, it's more about saying who runs the show, who coordinates the show. That best be in place with strong enough mandate, because without that, things will fall into different pieces and, and, and apart. Especially, and now that's a comment in Germany, especially if there's too much money. If there's little money, that helps because that makes others play with each other. If there's too much money, you run in very many different directions. But so, so yeah, this is more about saying, let's say, hey, choose one and give them then the really sort of the, the strength to do the job. So I've worked in the international public sector in the digital transformation, um, and in my experience, the digital transformation process is a lot about trade-offs, because you work with legacy systems, you work with legacy ways of working, processes, people who don't want to change or want to stick also to their things. You have a limited budget, um, and you have to constantly also argue for that budget, so you have to make big decisions of if you stick to with the budget or if you argue for more to actually you know, make the full impact that you actually intended because in the process you figure out, oh, it's actually much more difficult to actually yeah. have the impact that we wanted to achieve. So it, it boils down to making trade-offs which risk the impact that you're making or that you intended to have at the outset. It risks your achieving your goals at the end of the day. So from your work with leaders, maybe also from the 20 stories that, that are in the book, um, is there a recipe or is there you know, some advice that you have from your work um, with government leaders on where to make the cut and how, what strategy um, to run um, to make progress? And e even if it's incremental one, that would be probably what I would go for. But um, where is it also better to fight for bigger budgets, bigger projects, etc.? Excellent uh, question. Um, so first of all, I mean, I think trade-offs are not just one zero, black and white sort of, uh, especially over time. You might need to start or go into, like, say, a politically very attractive or uh, project or, you know, or, or fix a legacy that you didn't intend to. But then again, if that buys you the time and the air covers you do the next things, you know, for the next three years yourself, it's a pretty good trade-off for, for the time being, right? So my point being that I think the sort of, if you ask if there's a silver bullet, the closest to silver bullet is, is like a portfolio approach. 
or a portfolio thinking uh, in a sense that a lot of, especially we talk about lasting change, right? To make digital government successful across the number of years and, and into the longer sort of future, there are certain fundamentals that have to be in place in terms of legislation, governance, building blocks also like you know, identity or whatever. Right? So these usually take time to build up and convince everybody to get a change. I mean, so as a, as a digital government leader, you have to carve out people, space, time, resource to do this part of the job. But to be able to do that, perhaps you have to pull yourself into what is politically currently the most attractive, right? Or basically something that, that, that might need some fixing quicker way so that the team can run with the long-term stuff in parallel. So basically it's like, you know, 80% of effort goes in the direction that you actually want it to go, but then you consciously put some of the effort into what usually otherwise could be trade-offs. Now, this is easy to say that if you're very resourced in, re sorry, uh, stretched in resources, you may not have that luxury, but usually everybody does have it, right? At least some sort of discrepancy like that. So, an example that I have, I can just even quote the book in a way. So, um, uh, Canada, for example, I mean, the Canadian CIO, he took up what was basically, um, let me see how to put it nice now, <laughs> a pile of feces <laughs> in the Canadian government, saying that, you know, a project that had so massively failed that people were not getting paid. Uh, civil servants were not getting paid for months because IT system was not being delivered, okay? So, but he took that up, uh, even though nobody wanted to touch that as a trade-off because he saw that, hey, look, I mean, if, uh, you know, again, let the rest of the team in the background, you know, and I'm doing it, run in the longer direction, do the things that they want to do anyway. And then, but if they manage to make a change with a sort of big, bad project of sorts, right? Then actually it supports the longer direction and you get political backing, resourcing, and others behind to do the job you want to do. So this is me, I think this is if, if, if my best sort of way of answering you in a way to say that choosing those and choosing in those trade-offs wisely and exactly in a way that you don't put just, you know, one or zero, I, I do these other things and, and it's, it's not like, you know, I do nothing or nothing at all, right? Oh, sorry, everything or nothing at all. No, you got to mix this into a portfolio. And, uh, and perhaps just one last thing. Um, it's also the question of timing. So... Uh, Sometimes you just have to exactly take up something immediately, right? In the hope that then actually the next phase you get more support behind, right? That's how obviously everybody jumped at COVID. Well, first of all, it was also a big national need, right? We need to fix the solutions, the digital solutions to run vaccinations or uh, to um, the um, tracing of contacts and whatever. But that was also a chance that people realized, but hey, that's a chance now that we might need to put other work aside for a year or whatever. They didn't even know how much, but but for, for some time, because that then will support the long-term agenda, actually. So they use this also as a chance to bring in new methods of work, new kind of user experience, stuff like that. So the trade-offs, yeah, they're not black and white at all. Thank you very much. Uh, this is on, yeah? yeah. Um, very good. It's funny, you can't really hear it when you speak yourself. Yeah, well, it's a small room too, so yeah. <laughs> Um, so I was wondering, so I was um, working with the German government on, on OZG, like the German law kind of digitizes our services um, and, you know, kind of saying, oh, we want by the end of 2022 digitize those 575 services. And our approach was to say, okay, let's just kind of run with it. And it's like implement the first uh, digital services. Um, and then the idea was to kind of play that back to like 
-hmm. the political arena and you know ideally adapt laws adapt rules develop mm -hmm. standards and that really failed miserably right so like we had all these ideas and then just this this feedback cycle didn't really work so and and you mentioned you know, for a leader they need to connect like what they learn with like the the lawmakers so what would be your your guidance on how to ensure that that feedback cycle really works and doesn't fall apart well, this is not going to be a comment in Germany now. Uh, I, I don't know enough about that uh, as a context, but um, look, I think the the best sort of shot, the best sort of experience out there, and doesn't always succeed at all, right? Is is what what is the buzzword co-creation, right? So I mean, that's usually the, if 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 you manage to bring the lawyers, the legal lawmakers, sort of you know, on the board with a change yourself from the, from day one, uh, that's the best shot of making it this feedback loop happen. Then you don't need to talk about feedback loop, then it's immediate, right? You're immediately actually just like living and breathing the same sort of to be version, right? Not feeding it back somehow to the law legal process. Now, it's easier said than done because obviously they also need to be involved, right? So it takes two to tango, right? So they also have to play with you in that sense. If that sort of struggle is there, then it goes to politics. And that's again the claim of politics. Is there a way to basically make them <laughs> at least sort of be on board or at least tolerate you or come on board like that, right? Again, depends on the country if, if and how it's doable, right? So these are some of the things to start with, but it again, so depends on what can you realistically pull off, how bad is the context, and, and I mean, you talked about comparative public administration. Um, what was one very interesting detail for me was to say that like a general tendency of public administration to be cooperative or not competitive and cooperative, that also determines very much as to what sort of instruments you have to play or what sort of networking stuff you have to do for that. So in your case, if the general culture is to be competitive against everyone, right, not let the other agencies do the stuff, it's so much harder. And it's a different sort of toolbox you have to bring to really make this, or even to get them to co-create with you, right, as opposed to if it's cooperative in nature, much more easier. So I'm giving a vague answer, but again, the, the, there's, there's at least sort of, let's say, things you can start trying out with uh, in a way, but it depends on your context. I also have a follow-up question to Estonia, of course, I'm also an Estonian. And yeah, we have, our country has the reputation of being like the most digitalized country in the whole planet. But I was wondering also from your experience working at the government, what is crucial that Estonia keeps doing in the next decade or maybe does differently in order to keep this role as the most digitalized country? Because we cannot take it for granted that it stays like this. Like yeah, well, obviously I'm very biased on that, you know, having been there. <laughs> but um, um, look, I think for us, for Sto countries like Estonia, let's generalize it a bit, right? So those who already have basically gone through digitization, who have reached a very sort of advanced level on that, like I said, the challenge is to keep going at it. I think the key thing for countries like that is to basically not become tired of change. So basically be, be ready, be build the structures, build the mindset, build the readiness to keep changing. Because like, like we all, um, or many of us, rhetorically realize that change is the name of the game these days, right? You cannot afford not to keep changing. But actually, we all get stuck, or we we'll say we get used to doing things. There's like a fatigue or, or tiresome, very humane, right? That uh, comes in, let's say, after you, you're just constantly in a sort of cycle of, uh, of, of some change, right? But for example, countries like Estonia, again, as small as well, I don't think we can afford it. So, so that's a bit of philosophical answer to say that, I mean, how do you keep the momentum? Because digital is just a symptom of that, right? 
fundamental. It's just one aspect of the change like that. I mean, reforms and transformation happening, and and there has to be an appetite to keep trying new stuff out, experimenting. Uh, and there are ways as government teach the leaders. You know, we can support that. We tried our ways of that. How do you motivate the experimentation? How do you basically expose them to new ideas and you know try to lead with some of the experimentation stuff? How we started AI in government? That was the last talk we were talking about two years ago, right? Uh, was a part of that. So uh, so we just basically took a bit a bit upon government CI office in Estonia to actually get our hands dirty, dragging other agencies along with that because they weren't having it by themselves. So the tricks you can do, but fundamentally comes down to don't get tired of changing because. You can't afford it, perhaps, or you shouldn't afford it. Just a logistical question. Can we go over by five minutes or so? Would that be OK? OK. Thank you. Gerhard. I would like to add a question which I was surprised, which did not come up. Reading your book, I mean, that's top management leadership. So CIOs, these top leaders, there's very often this hero kind of understanding of them. Our students are much younger. What can we learn from such experiences of top management leaders for if you are now getting into government at a junior position, maybe a first leadership position? So is it the same points or what would you recommend to our students who want to develop and they will not start as CIOs, but they will have more kind of modest kind of functions? So what, and, and I know there's a lot of leadership, uh, leadership literature on bottom-up leadership, lower-level leadership, and book focuses only on the top leadership, but... Yeah. Can we also generalize something for other types of leadership? Well, actually, you a bit of stole my <laughs> the beginning of my responses. That so, uh, I'm perhaps very spoiled from my own government and background because I mean, Estonia. Our context is that we are not really hierarchical, and and we are also very, um, you know, flat in the sense that I mean, you know, anyone in the team can go up all the way to the minister and just like bounce an idea, right? For example, but but that I mean is that so in that sort of context, if if that's your setting as well, then. Uh, I would use the book saying, hey, look, what to, what to ask for my, or what to suggest to my management. Basically, so, and if, if the management, you know, obviously the manager is different, I hope they're sort of, you know, keen to learn and listening enough, right? I mean, that's also a way to sort of say, hey, look, I mean, let's do, try this thing differently, or, you know, why are we not paying enough attention to communications, or whatever it can be, right, in your context. Mm -hmm. So this is me, there's a whole, you said bottom-up management, but I think there's also exactly the whole notion of managing up and, and I would really, I think, especially for the students here, but, but through my own career as well, I've been blessed to have a chance to manage up. Meaning, so in a sense, to say, you know, bring expectations forward, try to suggest ideas, try to sort of try out different practices, get a mandate to try stuff out. And uh, that's been then also like a growth journey for the whole organization. So my point being, I'm learning a bit of tricks for that and not being shy for that might be the thing uh, I would suggest. And so basically, if, so if your boss is not doing stuff, the, the way you would like to, or the, you know, what you think from the book that they should, suggest it, try it out, you know, help them uh, along that as well. That's one thing, so managing up. But secondly, mm, I'm also, I mean, I think in a way those stories in, in the book also highlight the necessary elements or aspects of any change project, if you wish, a change initiative. So, again, simplest thing, if I go to communication side or networking, whatever, so these are the things that apply at any level. Whether you're trying to do whole of government change at once or concrete sort of initiative in a particular department, right? So at least you can take a hey saying, hey, so what were the elements that worked? What are the necessary elements that had to be in place like a Lego, right? And then still try to multiply, or, sorry, replicate that in, in your context. Especially because I think a lot of us, at least the active ones, um, 
we end up as sort of leaders, even in our small roles. If you're a project leader, you're also a leader. So, so in that sense, you can copy quite a bit. But managing up. I have a short follow-up question. Sorry, maybe we can collect the final, there are three more questions, so let's collect them. Yeah. And yeah. I'll have a quick one. Thank you. <laughs> um, I was actually just in Estonia last week with a student group um, and, and on a trip they were organized together with the Center for Digital Governance. Um, and as you just mentioned, so what we learned there is, um, you know, a lot of delegations come to Estonia to learn how, like from your legacy basically and how they can implement the same things in their country, which obviously doesn't just work to sort of paste and copy, uh, copy and paste things. <laughs> um, but what I was wondering, because you spoke to all these um, leaders, how did they learn from each other? Like was, right. did that play a role at all? Sort of peer support or, yeah, how did they interact with each other? Okay, so that's one. Just a friend of the Hertie School. <laughs> Sorry. Um, uh, lots of curiosity about the book now. Um, in terms of user orientation for this audience, uh, which of the 20 stories do you recommend as bedtime reading for tonight and why? <laughs> the app below that I wrote. Hi. Hi, thank you for the talk. Um, I was wondering, for, for many of us here, maybe we have an aspiration to work in digital governance when we finish, and we have maybe one or two years to go. So it, we've talked about like general managerial skills, it seems, but what would be the, the smartest way to go in technical terms? I mean, what kind of maybe technologies do we need to become acquainted with to maybe have a better shot at working in digital governance? All right. So I'll try to go by the order. Um, first question, the best leaders, again, constantly try to learn from each other. Like I said, that was the beginning of the book as well. Like These are the sort of conversations we kept having with each other anyways. Through when we went on the sort of international circuit or went on purpose to visit other countries to learn how they're doing things. We did that purposely in Estonia all the time. And even if, you know, somebody, cons you know, even if more people came our way and many others actually in the book attest to that as well, saying, hey, do this, so it's, it's like their recommendation in a, in a way of sorts. So whether you're trying to come up with a new strategy or whether you're trying to solve like a coordination issue or solve a, you know issue of how do you attract talent to your team, pick a brain of a colleague. So a lot of it is actually happening and, and that I think sort of reflects a theory out there saying that in many ways, sometimes you're even closer to with a peer from another country than to your own government sort of folks, right, you know, around you, right? And, and, uh, but you can use that, it really works this way, you can use that to your advantage. And those guys all the time do it. What's the best chapter? Um, I'm going to fail you now. I can't really choose you one. Because they're all just like you said, it's 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 so different uh, in terms of the context and stuff. Perhaps you have let, one. Let me recommend the one from Canada, because as he said, um, starts from the Phoenix software, which massively failed, and he starts from scratch. The spoiler alert is that this leader—I forgot the name—Alex um, Alex Benet. He um, he left too much in the job. So I, I'm not sure if it's a style of leadership to learn from, but the things he did were just amazing. Yeah. It's, um, it's really hard for me to pick you the most favorite. <laughs> <laughs> um, so 
technologies and, and stuff. Look, I'll, I'm still biased because of what I do and why I'm here, I guess, sort of in a way to say. I think there's many technology people to go around, even if obviously everybody talks about shortage of tech talent too. But what's even more rare is people who know how to make them work <laughs> as a team for a change in the government. So I would still say this way, that look, in a way, studying this practice, trying out some of the change stuff, you have a chance to do an internship or whatever, or work with some of the government agencies in your home or this country, whatever. I think that's even more valuable, honestly. Tech, you can learn along the way. And I mean, these things you can also learn along the way. But I mean, tech, you know, it changes anyways. And you, you build up a new, I mean, new uh, programming language becomes popular, whatever. So that's, you gotta give fresh. But this is like the basic stuff. Basic stuff matters to get basic direction there. This sort of things we talk about here, the management of that makes the difference between good, great, or you're lousy. So I'm biased, but, but this is really my honest view. Yeah. Thank you, everyone. I'm afraid we need to leave it here. Um, as both Gerhard and Sim said, we have copies in the library for you. Of course, we encourage you to buy the book, primarily. Uh, but one way or another, uh, don't miss this book because uh, it has really lessons. I think that the title is, is right. Before you go, uh, I would like to give you a gift on behalf, on behalf of the Center for Digital Governance. Um, and Thank you. Uh, you will, Sim will stay uh, for a few minutes and uh, or, yes. quite, a few minutes. quite a few minutes so he can interact with you over coffee. So thank you everyone. Thank you.